0: Okay, the scripture reading this morning is found in 2 Peter chapter 3 verses 13 and 14. 2 Peter 3:13 and 14. And if you're using the house bible, it's page 1206. But in keeping with His promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth, the home of righteousness. So then, dear friends, since you are looking forward to this, make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with Him. Dean has the, servant, the service this morning, and his uh, sermon is entitled, Agony and the Complete Victory.
1: There's just one, uh, one mistake there. I'm introducing the sermon with, with a few words. The sermon is a guest speaker whom you will meet shortly. The heavenly country is a most wonderful place. Opposing that is a place of war, a terrible thing. They are polar opposites, the very best and the very worst. The scriptures have some amazing messages. The most amazing parts of scripture just jump out at us. And one of those parts are these words. And there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon fought in his angels, and prevailed not. Neither was their place found any more in heaven. And the great dragon was cast out, that old serpent called the devil, and Satan, which deceiveth the whole world. He was cast out into the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. Revelation 12, 7-9. Jesus had something to say about that as well. Amazing how the Bible fits together like a beautiful puzzle. And he said unto them, I beheld Satan as lightning fall from heaven. Luke 10.18 I beheld Satan as lightning fall from heaven. Jesus was there when it happened. He caused it to happen. He's the one that cast Satan out of heaven after the great war. This great controversy is real. It is painstakingly real. It is alive in everyone born, and it Of us today in this room, everyone is involved in this great controversy, whether we know it or not, whether we like it or not. We all must join one side or the other, one army or the other army. Choose the army of Jesus Christ or the army of the evil one, Satan himself. The choice of Christ means eternal life in the heavenly country and live forever. The choice of Satan means eternal death and your name forever forgotten. Your name is never to be remembered again if you choose Satan. The choice is rather stark, is it not? Every hour and every day we live, we make choices either for or against Jesus who died for us. He says to us all, come unto me, all you who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Not only that, but eternal life as well, he says. One day the trumpet will sound and the lightning flashes in the sky. Millions upon millions of angels surround the King Jesus as he descends to this planet, the planet he bought back at Calvary. He did this on Calvary's Hill outside Jerusalem that dark Friday afternoon. The nails on that cross were put there by each one of us. We drove the nails. The subject today is agony and then complete victory. In this great war, there have been and there always will be casualties. The question is, then how should we then live in view of this? as we live here and face eternal life or eternal loss. In a few minutes, we will hear an amazing story in Scripture, a heart-rending story about a young man blessed by God in the prime of life. He was known as a voice crying in the wilderness. He said that he was on earth to prepare the way of the Lord. He loved to preach, and preach he did. He preached his heart out. His fate, then, is hard to understand. Yet Jesus said, never was a greater man born among women. That is the subject of the sermon you are about to hear. Sean Boonstra has a focus on this scripture passage from Matthew 11. But then he weaves in modern-day real-life stories. One is his own. Speaker, director of it is written, going around this planet, giving evangelistic series that he loved to do. It took months to plan one of his most recent, that in Rome, in the shadow of the Vatican itself. It started off a little bumpy. He had everything on his laptop that he needed for the month series. Cord was running across the floor there, and somebody ran and tripped it and crashed it onto the floor. He had to bring up from his memory the sermons for a month he next they noticed people that were coming to the meetings. there was about a thousand they noticed that out in the parking lot certain people were slashing tires um, to make it worse, midway through the series, he got very, very ill. Somehow he was able to finish the series. Hundreds and hundreds were baptized, including... He's kind of a unique person. He went around the city and found a barber shop. He didn't need a haircut, but he thought, well, I'll go and get a haircut, meet a meet a person. And that man is now worshiping the Sabbath in a church, in the shadow of the Vatican, in a Protestant Adventist church. He became very ill, as I said. He came back and... Um, he just was too weak to continue as speaker-director of It Is Written. So what he did was he had to resign. He was forced to resign from the very thing he had loved all his life to, to do. As a, four, as a seven-year-old boy, he first saw George Vaneman on a black-and-white TV set with It Is Written. And now he's a speaker-director. Now after just six years, he has to resign and give it to somebody else. It tore his heart out. At one point, he thought he was going to die during this eight month illness. So he's experienced a kind of the John the Baptist story. He was examined by hundreds of tests, numerous specialists, coast to coast. Nobody could find an answer to his illness. There's good news coming, though, a little later. Um, now, Pastor Buntris tells another modern day story of people inspired to go to Africa for service to the master, then tragedy upon tragedy upon tragedy. In these ambassadors for Jesus Christ out in the middle of Africa, you'll hear hear the story. Remember our sermon today is agony and then complete victory. I can't sit down before I tell you briefly about Maury Vendon, somebody who's touched countless lives around this globe, including my own, and changed my life. I was a long-time Christian, missionary and all the rest. Somehow I hadn't focused in on Jesus Christ or righteousness and righteousness by faith. It just sort of had eluded me somehow. I don't know. I knew it, but I didn't know it. Then I heard it again for the first time when he started preaching this thing. And it changed my life. Now, Maury in one of his last sermons, he spoke about, matter-of-factly, about his own terminal illness. Well, today, as we meet here, he's in a psychiatric-type nursing home up in Washington. Doesn't really know much what's going on. And, however, I am convinced. The one day he will hear the trumpet and come out of his dusty bed. The other part of the story that Sean Boonster would not tell you is, I talked to his office secretary. She told me this amazing story. She said, well, we all know he has very bad back trouble and he's had surgery and all the rest. And uh, as often back surgeries do, it didn't go too well. The disease process was pretty pretty bad extensively. And she said this to me. She said, every time he gets up to speak, his pain goes away. When he's finished and he sits down, the pain comes back. Amazing. Absolutely amazing. Um, as you watch closely at the end of his sermon today, you will see his face grimace in pain as he sits down. His story and all the modern stories are based on Matthew 11 and John the Baptist. Listen carefully. I don't think you'll be disappointed. In fact, I don't think you'll ever forget this sermon. I have not, and I've seen it a number of times. And in addition, this is his first sermon after eight long months of illness that he was able to get up in the pulpit. Sean Boonstra, The Agony and then Complete Victory.
2: If any choir were to ever admit me into their number, I'd want it to be that one. You guys are good. If I promise just to lip sync, can I like join the choir? I just want to stand in the middle of all that music. I I can't sing a note. Well, I can sing one, but it's kind of a guess as to which one you're going to get. I want to thank you for your prayers. As Elder Friedman said a moment ago, this is the first time I've been in the pulpit in quite a while. And I've missed it. I know you've been praying. People have been asking all over the place, well, what do you have? They don't know. <laughs> What's funny is, at the end of it all, the doctor sent me on the way out the door and said, well, either you'll get better or you won't. <laughs> I thought, man, I knew that when I came in. Excited to be in the Northwest. This does feel like home. It's up here in the Northwest. I saw you a moment ago, Dan. Or is it? I met Dan Bensinger. He taught me everything I know. So when you have a problem with the sermon this morning, (laughs) Dan, it's sure nice to see you, man. I went for a walk yesterday, and I thought, is this really Seattle? It's so nice out. What? What strange place is this? And when I woke up this morning, I knew I was in the right place. It's wet here. Y'all don't have tans. You just rust, right? (laughs) We're going to look at Matthew chapter 11. It's a chapter I've preached before. But I come at it with uh, a little more personal experience behind it. I'd invite you to bow your heads in prayer. Father in heaven, I know for a fact that I don't have any right to stand here except that you cover me with the blood of Christ, forgive my sins, make me fit to speak. Father, if this should be the last time I ever preach, I I pray that there would be a smile on the face of Jesus when I'm done. And that I would reveal his love and his character and that we would know him better. And that we would decide in our hearts that our lives belong to him. And I ask now that you cover my mistakes and that you speak through me. And when Jesus speaks to each of us this morning, we will follow. For we pray it in his holy name. Amen. In Matthew chapter 11, Jesus has just finished visiting with some of his disciples. And he's getting ready to go out preaching when all of a sudden the disciples of John the Baptist show up and they begin asking some really awkward questions. Matthew chapter 11 and verse 2. Now when John had heard in the prison the works of Christ, he sent two of his disciples And said unto him, Art thou he that should come, or do we look for another? Jesus answered and said unto them, Go and show John again those things which you do hear and see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he, verse 6, whosoever shall not be offended in me. Master, are you really Messiah? Are you really the one who was supposed to come? Because we're wondering. I mean, our leader, our master, is sitting in prison. The one who heralded you as Messiah, he's locked up. He doesn't have the luxury of preaching like you're preaching. So what we're wondering is, did we make a colossal mistake about you? Of course, as you dig around in the story, you quickly discover they're not really asking the question, not these men. No, it's John the Baptist who sent them to ask the question. After years in the desert, teaching a distinctly prophetic message, telling the world Messiah is coming, it's starting to occur to the greatest prophet who ever lived that maybe he's wrong. Maybe he made a mistake because the evidence of his senses Well, that's telling him that maybe he was wrong. Maybe he wasted his whole career for nothing because now he's in prison. He's not out free preaching alongside Jesus. Matthew chapter 11, if you think about it, really is a very strange story to include in the Bible. Because this is the last thing we ever hear about John the Baptist. We don't get a final sermon out of him. We don't see a miracle that he performs. He is not caught up into heaven like Elijah. We get nothing from John except the report that he's in prison doubting his faith, doubting his message, and soon to lose his life. Why is that story in your Bible? Why would God put that there? You know, when you first come across the three angels' messages in life, it's pretty exciting stuff. I mean, when you realize that God is raising up a remnant movement with a worldwide, explosive, powerful message for the last days, before Jesus comes, well, that is very, very exciting. And when you first see those three angels' messages, and you start to realize how beautiful they are, and consistent, the breadth and depth of those messages, it is exciting. When you first see the three angels' messages and you take that lens and you look back at the rest of the Bible for the very first time and you see how those messages tie everything together and they answer all the questions you've ever had and all those loose little strands you've been wondering about in the Bible start to make sense. That is exciting. It's like standing on a mountaintop with a 360 degree view when you have the three angels' messages. You can see the rest of the Bible with crystal clarity. It all came together for me, when I saw it, it really did. I mean, I'd always wondered what would happen when Jesus came back. My parents bought me a Bible in 1976, and I started to read the Book of Revelation first out of the gate, and it was so real to me that I remember going into the backyard looking up, wondering when Jesus would come. Any minute now, I should see him come, and I wanted to read everything I could about the second coming of Christ. And so I was in my grandfather's house, and I noticed on the bookshelf he had a book about the second coming. So I stole it. Now, you've got to wonder, is that actually a sin? I don't know. Is it, right? is it still a sin to steal a book about the second? I took it home, and what I read in there scared me to death. Jesus is going to sneak in in the middle of the night, and half the world is going to disappear, and then I'm going to have to take on the Antichrist all by myself, and it's just going to be a terrible seven. I scared me to death. What is it going to be like when Jesus comes? I also remember as a kid that whenever a friend or a family member died, I would suddenly be on my very best behavior for about three weeks because I figured they were watching me and they would report anything I did straight to God. Scared me to death. I remember being forced to go to catechism class at about the age of 12, and I grew up in a tradition that taught that God chose people to be saved or lost before they were born. And I didn't like that at all. I asked the pastor, well, how do I know if I'm in the right group? I want to make sure I'm in the right group. And the pastor said, well, don't worry about that kind of stuff, Sean. You're probably going to be okay. I didn't want probably... I mean, I noticed from the age of eight that life ends the same way for all of us. And one day they're going to put me in a grave if Jesus doesn't come first. And I don't want probably at that moment. As they're lowering me into my grave and somebody throws that handful of dirt on my casket, I don't want probably. I don't want probably when the rest of the church members go back to the church to have the potluck afterwards and they're eating their tater tots and cream of mushroom soup. I'm still out there in that grave. I don't want probably. I want to know. So you can imagine how I felt in a seventh day Adventist evangelistic meeting when all of a sudden through the lens of the three angels' messages, the whole Bible fell open and it started to make sense. That felt fantastic. I knew that when Jesus comes, every eye will see Him, every ear will hear Him, the graves will open and there is no probably I'll be fine. I loved it. Felt great. And as time goes on, it gets better and better and better. The more I study those messages, it's kind of like a snowflake. You put a snowflake underneath a microscope, and the more you look, the more beautiful it is. But something man made, like a tablecloth, put that under the microscope, and you see the flaws. There are no flaws in the three angels' messages. You can examine them the rest of your life and never get to the bottom of it. It brings the whole Scriptures together in one pinpoint focus that defines what God's last day message to this world is. And it feels very, very good to know for sure. I mean, now I look at world events and they make sense. And history makes sense. I hated history in high school. But now, it makes sense to me. And in a very real way, the prophecies of the Bible make sense to me. And it Feels very good to know for sure. But then a little while ago, I started asking a different kind of question. And I want you to bear with me as I ask this question of you, because it is an important one. What would happen if all of a sudden you came under the distinct impression you were wrong? What if the evidence started to point in the wrong direction? And you started to think that maybe you made a mistake. It's a possibility we have to consider because the man that Jesus calls the greatest prophet in history is suddenly utterly confused about the subject of prophecy. In his mind, the kingdom should already be established. He should not be rotting in a prison cell. He should be out there preaching with the disciples of Jesus Christ. He's confused. And I kind of feel sorry for him because he doesn't have the benefit of the New Testament like we do. He can't read Jesus telling his disciples they're going to be persecuted. He doesn't know about the coming sack of Jerusalem. He doesn't know about the crucifixion and the resurrection. He cannot see the book of Revelation and see the long history that still lays ahead for the Christian church. He could not go to the book of Hebrews and read about the heroes of the faith. That didn't exist in his day. I feel sorry for him. He couldn't read Hebrews chapter 12 where Paul says, let us run with patience the race that is set before us. He can't see all that. So I wonder why is that story there? 1921. A few years before I was born. (laughs) David and Svea Flood lived in a little comfortable house in Sweden. Had a two-year-old boy. They had a very nice life. They weren't wealthy, but they were comfortable. And one day they both came under conviction. It was odd they had the same conviction, but hadn't talked to each other yet until one day Svea said, you know, David, I'm not happy anymore. He said, no, me either. What's up with you? She said, I can't stop thinking about it. All those people going to a Christless grave. Well, we live here comfortably. They're going to Christless graves. How can we spend our lives doing things that will not matter a thousand years from now? I know, said David, I've been thinking exactly the same thing. And so, in answer to the irresistible call of God, they signed up as missionaries. They packed their stuff and they went to the Belgian Congo. When they got there to the mission station, they met another family, the Erickson. So now there's five of them. David, Svea, their little boy, and Mr. and Mrs. Erickson. I don't know their first names. They go off into the jungle and they make contact with the village of Endolera. I have no idea if that's how it's pronounced, but for this morning, that's how it's pronounced. Village of Endalara. And about five minutes after making contact with the village, they realized this isn't going to go well. This is not going to be easy work because the chief forbid them to come into the village. He told the entire town, he said, if you let those people in with their strange God, the spirits are going to get very angry. And sometimes we smile and say, what a naive bunch of people. But if you've ever been involved in evangelism, you know it's true what that chief said. Their life's going to be miserable for a little while if they start listening to the gospel of Jesus Christ because there are fallen angels. There are spirits that make people's lives miserable. He was afraid to let them into the village. And so they were cut off. He banned them completely. They had to go and build a little house about a half mile away. They built two mud huts to live in on a grassy hill. And the only contact they had with the villagers was once a week when a little boy came out of the village to sell them chicken and sell them eggs. And he was only allowed to stay for a minute. He was under strict orders. Don't you talk to those people. Drop off the food, make your trade, and get out of there. So here they are, the five of them, thousands of miles from home in a strange place with strange customs and strange food and a strange language and strange gods. And they're doing this sacrificially for God, and it doesn't seem to work at all. In fact, not only were they cut off from the village, they all got malaria. Very bad, and it was they, they got so sick that eventually the Ericssons decide that's it. They pack up and they leave. They went back to the mission station, leaving David and Svea and their two-year-old boy there by themselves. And it wasn't long after that that Svea came to David and said, "There's something I need to talk to you about." He said, "What is it, honey?" She said, "David, I'm I'm pregnant." Now, I don't know about you, but if I were on that mission board back then, and I heard that story, and they had malaria, and half the team was gone, and they're not allowed in the village, and Svea's expecting, I don't know about you, but I'd be one of the ones voting, let them come home. We'll send them again later, maybe when the child grows up or they feel better. I'd be one of the ones voting to bring them home, but they would not go. There was a fire in their heart. Something told them to stay. So their little daughter, Ina, was born in a mud hut on a little hill half a mile from Endelera. And 17 days later, Svea Flood was dead from complications. Gone. I don't know what you've gone through in your life. So I don't know if you can imagine it or not. But there he is in the middle of nowhere with a little toddler, a brand new baby and the body of his wife. And when the baby starts crying, what's he going to do? How do you deal with that? How do you put on a funeral all by yourself? There's no funeral home, there's no flowers, there's no silk lined casket, no cards from the church member, none of the stuff that we have here to help us cope with the reality of death. He just had a shovel, a little plot of ground behind the hut, and a little white wooden cross that he made out of scrap lumber. How do you deal with that? Sad truth is he couldn't. And like John the Baptist, he started to ask some questions. Maybe the whole thing had been a mistake. Maybe he just wanted to hear from God so badly he dreamed it all up. Maybe he just wanted to be important and so he thought God had sent him. And he packed his bags, went back to the mission station, gave the baby to the Erickson, saying, I can't handle a newborn, you take her. And he went back home. Why is the story of John the Baptist there? I'm convinced it's there for people like David. I'm convinced it's there for two guys I know. Two guys who were absolutely convinced God was calling them to do something great for His kingdom. They had this compulsion. It wasn't just a vague impression they had. A feeling in their stomachs after they heard about the importance of evangelism at camp meeting. It wasn't something vague. They felt conviction and they could hear God calling them through the pages of the Bible. I'll call them Bill and Steve. Bill, look at what it says. It says the gospel of the kingdom be preached in all nations. Then Jesus is going to come. I know, I've been reading it too. I've been reading it too. It says we ought to go and baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, teach them all things. i got to go, don't you? Yeah, we've got to go. But Steve, don't you think before we go we should have a visioning session and draft a mission statement and maybe we should go back to school and get PhDs in theology because after all, you know, Soul winning is pretty serious business and you wouldn't let an amateur do brain surgery, would you? Actually, that's not part of the story. I threw that in there to make a point. (laughs) Because I read an article a little while ago saying how irresponsible it is for lay people to share their faith because they're not experts. I couldn't believe what I was reading. If you have a relationship with Jesus, you're an expert on Jesus. You go share it. Fortunately, these guys never read the article. Bill and Steve don't need a visioning session. They knew what they had to do. And so, exercising the height of Christian courage, they went, they pulled out a map, and they picked a little remote town. If I were to give you the name of the town, most of you would never be able to find it on a map. And they poured their hearts into that town. They studied the book Evangelism. They studied the methods of evangelists over the last hundred years. They studied the methods of Jesus. They went and they knocked on doors in the community. They handed out literature. They gave Bible studies. They put on cooking classes. They had a... Breathe free class and finally after weeks and weeks and weeks of hard work they rented a hall and they held an evangelistic meeting. They mailed out handbills. They invited the community and wouldn't you know it on opening night it was standing room only. I've been in the little room where it happened. I've seen it. It was packed to the rafters wall to wall with people and Bill and Steve are backstage. There wasn't really a stage. They're in a broom closet and they're praying together and suddenly Bill says, Steve, The Lord just laid something on my heart. All those people are out there. This place is really full. Uh, Steve, the Lord is telling me something. What's He telling you, Bill? Well, the Lord's telling me maybe you should preach tonight. (laughs) I don't think He's telling you that. Uh, The Lord's telling me you should preach. They worked up their courage, and that's exactly what they did. They went out and followed God's plan. You know, we don't have to pull this out of a hat, what we do. We've been told what to preach. We've been told when to preach it. We've been told in what order to preach it. We've been told how to advertise it. We've been told how to find a hall to preach it. We've been told how to... We've been given so much advice, we lack for no information. And they followed the advice to a T. They preached the second coming of Christ. They went down through Revelation 13. They shared the state of the dead. They taught the remnant church and the spirit of prophecy. And the most important thing they did is in every one of those subjects, they planted the cross of Christ so that people could see Jesus giving His life for them. And at the end of the meetings, they got excited. It's time for an altar call, I think, Bill. And they had one. And nobody came forward. Not even one. And when they got back home, the critics sneered and the skeptics said, I told you so. And even in the ranks of the brethren, people shook their heads and whispered stuff about how the day of old-fashioned evangelism is gone. I think that's why John's story is in Matthew chapter 11. And I think that's why Paul says run with patience. That's the last story we have about John the Baptist. See, patience is the first thing we forget when the heat is on. I can't tell you how many people have come into my study. Pastor, I can't find a job, so what good is following God? I thought He was going to provide for my needs. I can't fix my marriage. My wife packed up and left last night, so what good is following God? Pastor, my eyesight is starting to go. I'm not even 40 years old. I'm never going to see my kids graduate from high school, and I'm not going to be able to walk my daughter down the aisle one day because she's going to have to walk me. I think that story's there because there come moments where the evidence of your senses tell you you're wrong. John's story's there because we're going to need it. It's not just there for you, either. I believe with all my heart it's there for God's remnant church in the last moments before Jesus comes. I mean, right now, all the evidence is in our favor. It is so much fun to be an Adventist evangelist. I can open Matthew 24, and the whole audience says, Wow, that is us right now. Jesus is coming soon. There's been a devastating earthquake and a tsunami in Japan and the the radioactive leak out of the plant. Tens of thousands of people dying. Typhoon in Burma, the worst economic conditions in America since the Great Depression. Strange new weather patterns. A new relationship building between the President of the United States and the Bishop of Rome. It is an easy time to be a Seventh-day Adventist. Because right now all the evidence is in our favor. Right now we're like John standing at the Jordan River and Jesus shows up and the heavens open and God makes an announcement and it's easy to get the point across right now. But what about when it's not so easy? What about the moment when the evidence of our senses tells us we're wrong? It's coming. I mean, think about this. Read prophecy carefully. Back in Elijah's day, as he challenges the prophets of Baal, God brings fire down from heaven in everybody's presence, and there is no question, who is God? But in the last days, the Bible tells us in Revelation 13, it is the second beast who brings fire down from heaven, and all the evidence will be in the wrong place at that moment. Do not build your faith on miracles. Do not build your faith on signs and wonders. Because in the last days, they're all in the wrong place. On the day of Pentecost, Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit fell on the disciples and suddenly they're able to tell the story of Jesus in all those different languages. It's a miracle. Proof that God was there. But in the last moments, just before Jesus comes, it's the image of the beast that speaks to the world. And unclean spirits like frogs come out of the mouth of the dragon and the beast and the false prophet. The signs and wonders in the last moment will be in the wrong place. That's why the story of John is there. I mean, what are you going to do when you turn on the news and there's Jesus walking the streets of New York City? Not going to happen, Sean. Yes, it is. 2 Thessalonians 2 tells us it's going to happen. Even Him whose coming is after the working of Satan. That word coming in the Greek is parousia. It's the same word used for the second coming of Christ. It's the only way the Bible uses that word other than that one verse is for the second coming of Christ it is a description of someone making a royal entrance like a king someone is coming after the working of Satan who will mimic the second coming of Christ and when Jesus appears to be walking the face of the earth looking exactly like the descriptions in the Bible what is the evidence of your senses going to tell you at that moment the only thing you will have is the word of God that's it And that's why the story of John is there, because it is the truth about our experience in this sinful world. There will be moments where you cannot see. Now I sometimes wonder, what's going through Abraham's mind as he's standing outside the cave of Machpelah five minutes after he buries Sarah? What's he thinking about? Because she followed him. Years on the trail, following the promise of God, and now he's standing outside his wife's tomb. All those problems with the king of Egypt, the problems with the kings in the valley of Siddam, where he had to go and rescue his nephew. He doesn't have anything to show for it. All he has is the promise of God. So what's he thinking about outside her tomb? Thinking about the day he went into the kitchen to tell her? Sarah? Something we need to talk about. What is it, Abram? I knew there was something. You just haven't been yourself later. Hey, it's not because we can't have kids, is it? I know everyone in town is talking about that. You're not looking for another wife. Relax, I'm not looking for another wife, Sarah. The fact is, I've been speaking to God. Well, Which God, Abram? Because your dad's got a lot of them in his shop. Oh, you know which God it is, Sarah. You know who it is. It's the one who tore down the Tower of Babel. It's the one who walked with Father Adam and Mother Eve in the garden. That's the God, the one who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and all that in them is. What's he telling you, Abram? Well, that's kind of the hard part. Sarah, he's telling me we got to move. Well, that's not so bad. I saw that on the other side of Ur they've got a new gated community and it has a little clubhouse and a pool and a nine-hole golf course and I kind of this place is getting old and needs remodeling. Moving's not sitting, Sarah. It's not really moving so much as it's leaving. Leaving Abram. Leaving? Where do you propose we leave to? I subscribe to those time life books and I have seen what lays outside of Mesopotamia. There is nothing out there but some barbarians in desert. Where exactly do you propose we leave to? I don't know. What do you mean you don't know? I don't know. But we have to pack and we have to go because I love him and if he says go, we go. He can remember it now like it was yesterday and now he's standing outside her grave. She never saw the promise. She gave up a home in Ur for a tent in the desert. And lest we think that life was primitive in Ur, they've been digging those homes up. They're four bedrooms with running water. Two stories. She gave it all up to follow him through the desert. And all she has at the end is a cave that Abraham had to buy from a Hittite. The Hittite tried to give it to him, but Abraham's not about to take anything the Lord doesn't hand him on that territory. So he buys it. And as he stands outside her grave, all he's got left is a promise. Abraham, God had told him, wherever you set your foot, that will be yours. The foot's a very important symbol in the Bible. It's a symbol of possession and ownership. That's why in the old days when you conquered your enemy, you put your foot on his throat just before you cut his head off. It was just a symbol saying, I own you. It's why in the book of Job, when God says to Satan in chapter 1, where have you been? Where did you come from? He says, I've been walking up and down in the earth. What's he saying to all those assembled there? I own that planet. They gave it to me. It's a symbol of ownership. That's why God says to Abraham, you go walk through that land. It's ownership. That's why Zechariah says that the final return of Jesus, after the millennium, that's the moment he puts his feet on the ground. That's the day His feet touch the Mount of Olives. When Jesus comes for us, He doesn't touch the ground. We go to meet Him. And then we open the books of judgment. And once everything is settled, then He touches the ground and lays hold of His inheritance. The foot is an important symbol of ownership. God says you go for a walk by faith and everything your feet touch, that you will own. And this morning, God says the same thing to you. As you are sitting in this auditorium, as you are watching over the internet, I want you to push down on the ground with your feet and just feel it. Feel that ground under your feet. Wiggle your toes. Everything you touch belongs to Jesus and you are a co-heir with Him and when His feet touch the Mount of Olives in that day, we will be here with Him and walk this ground again. We own this through Jesus. When the Waldensians fled into the wilderness, their feet were running across ground. They would run across again because it belongs to Jesus. When John Huss was tied to the stakes and the flames were licking at his feet, he's not standing on a pile of wood. He's standing on his inheritance and he can smile and sing because he will be back and stand on that ground again. It belongs to Jesus. Thousands of people this morning are going to walk the aisles and altar calls all over the planet. And when they walk down to the front, they're walking on ground that belongs to Jesus. When you walk through your neighborhood and pray for a way to speak to your neighbors about Jesus, you're walking on ground that already belongs to Him. Just like Abraham, we can walk the breadth of this earth and claim it for Christ. It's already done. Little Ina was handed to the Ericssons at the mission station. David Flood, broken, bitter, and tired, went home to Sweden. Eight months after that, the Ericssons died of malaria. And baby Ina was handed off to an American family who renamed her Aggie and brought her here to the United States. And instead of growing up in the Belgian Congo, she... Grew up in South Dakota. Went to Bible college in Minneapolis. Met the love of her life. And then they settled right here in Seattle. And then one day, for no apparent reason, a Swedish magazine comes in the mail. For no apparent reason. And Ina, who is now Aggie, is in the kitchen flipping through this strange magazine. And as she's going through it, it stops on a picture that makes her heart slow down. It's a simple grave somewhere in Africa with a white wooden cross on it with the name Svea Flood. And somehow she knew that picture was important. She had that impression. So she got in her car, drove down to the college where she knew a faculty member who spoke Swedish. What does it say? He read through the article, Aggie, he said it's a story about some missionaries who went to a village in the Belgian Congo and they had a baby out there in the Congo and then the mother died. That's her cross on that grave. Well, is there any more to the story? Well, yeah, it says there was this one little boy who used to come out of the village once a week to deliver eggs and chickens to them. And the mother used to whisper in his ear every time even though he wasn't allowed to listen and eventually he accepted Jesus. And when that little boy grew up, he came back to the village and convinced the old chief to let him build a school for all the children. And soon the children all accepted Jesus as their Savior and they went home to their parents and the parents started to listen to the gospel and today there are 600 believers in that little village. Somehow, instinctively, Aggie knew that the missionaries were her mother and father. And she knew what she had to do. She had to try and find her dad. Some of her friends at the college for her 25th wedding anniversary bought her a ticket to Sweden. She got over there and tracked down her family and found a whole bunch of half-brothers and sisters she didn't know she had because David had gotten remarried and had more family. And what a time they had getting acquainted. And as the evening wore on, she finally asked the question, Well, I really want to meet Dad. Is he still alive? Yeah. He's here in town. Would you like to meet him? Oh yeah, I have to meet him. I have got to tell him what God did after we left. Aggie, if I were you, I wouldn't mention God to him. He hates God. Aggie didn't care. Went over to his apartment. It was squalid. It was dark. It smelled bad. There were liquor bottles on the floor. And there was her dad in a crumpled thin heap on the bed. And she cried through the darkness when she saw him. Papa! He heard the voice, he rolled over and looked, and I can't tell you how he knew, I can't tell you that. But he did. Aina, he said. I'm so sorry, I didn't think I had a choice. I didn't mean to give you away, but I was all by myself. And I didn't mean to... Papa, I know. She sat on the bed and she wrapped her arms around him. Papa, I know. It's okay though. Because God took care of me. She felt him stiffen up in her arms. Don't you talk to me about God. God. I gave him my whole life, and he failed me, and nothing came out of it. I lost it all. Don't you talk to me about God. But Papa, you don't understand. It really happened. After you left, they all came to Christ. All of them. There are 600 believers there ready for Jesus to come because of what you did. And he began to cry. And there on that filthy little bed, he gave his heart to Jesus several weeks before he died. A few years later, Aggie went to a conference in England where she heard a report from the superintendent of the National Church of Zaire, which used to be the Belgian Congo. That got her attention, so she waited down by the platform after his presentation for him to come down. She said, you know... I know it's an outside chance, but my parents used to work in the Belgian Congo, and I'm just curious if you've ever heard their names. He said, well, what were their names? She said, they were David and Svea Flood. He said, David and Svea Flood? When I was a little boy, I used to bring chickens and eggs to them. I was at a camp meeting some years ago, and this guy walks up to me with tears streaming down his cheeks. He said, can I talk to you? I said, sure. He said, years ago, a friend and I came under conviction and we went to the small northern community to answer the call of God. We did it all. We knocked on doors, held brief-free seminars, gave out Bible studies. We put on an evangelistic meeting in a rented hall, and it was full every night. And then nobody came forward in the end, not one decision. He said, but you know, as I was packing up in tears. I had this conviction that I ought to write a letter to the conference, so I did. I sent a letter to the conference saying there's so much interest, we didn't get any decisions, but maybe, maybe if somebody were to go there, like a Bible worker or a lay pastor or somebody. He said, You know what happened? Somewhere in a logging camp, in the middle of the night, a man had a dream about the second coming of Jesus Christ. Two in the morning, he woke up in a cold sweat. He had seen a light outside his window in his dream, and he heard people yelling, We're not ready! And he came under conviction that the Lord was telling him to get busy saving souls. So he wrote a letter to the conference saying, I don't know what I'm supposed to do, but I'm supposed to do something. Both those letters came to the conference at about the same time. One asking for a worker, one volunteering to be a worker. So they put it together. And that man went up to that little town. And folks, that man and his family became my very first contact with the Seventh-day Adventist church. Abraham, Abraham, wake up! Somebody's breaking into our tent! Abraham hears a noise. He stirs and he draws a breath for the first time in 4,000 years. Sarah, this is no tent. You're in a cave. i got to explain how this happened to you sometime. But that's not a thief breaking in. That is an angel coming in. It's time to go home. And the angel's there at the door. Come on, Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, Jake. Wake up, everybody. It is time now to go home. And Abraham's in the courts of heaven. I don't know how you picture it, but I picture it all the time. What's it going to be like? I see Abraham in the library because you know heaven's going to have a big library just because I love him. You realize how much catching up he's going to have to do? He's going to be in the library studying. He's never heard of Daniel. He's going to have to study that all out. And there he is in heaven, and he's studying Daniel chapter 8 unto 2,300 days, and then there shall the sanctuary be cleansed. And he's mapping it all out with a pencil there in heaven's library. Look at that, 1844. That is remarkable how that all falls into place. And as he's mapping it out, he bumps into somebody. Oh, pardon me, he said. I'm Abraham, by the way. Oh, I'm John. John. What are you reading, Abraham? I'm reading this stuff about Daniel. I know, that's pretty fascinating, isn't it? What are you reading, John? He says, well, I'm reading these Gospels here. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. I'm looking at it because I'm dying to know what happened after they cut off my head. (laughs) Interesting, isn't it? Abraham gets back into the books. There's so much to learn. And as he's looking, he feels a hand on his shoulder and he doesn't even have to look this time. Abraham, it's so good to see you. Lord, it's good to see you too. It's been a long time. It's been longer for me, says Jesus. You got to sleep and I had to wait. Abraham, I want you to put down all the books for a minute because I want to show you something. You can come back later. Oh, Lord, this is so... No, just really, come with me. And in my mind's eye, I see them step outside the library. Bear with me, it's imagination. And they're on a porch and there's a sea of people down below. And when Jesus and Abraham step out, they cheer. Wow, Lord, Do they ever love you? I know they love me, but Abraham, the cheer's not for me. It's for you. Try and count these people. Remember when I promised that they would be as the sand of the sea and the stars of heaven? Try and count them now. And I I sort of made a promise when I was down on earth. I made a promise that they could come from the east and the west and sit down for a meal with you. And today's the day. (laughs) It's going to be a big meal. (laughs) You're going to have to shake a lot of hands. I can't wait. What have you suffered? There come moments where it seems pretty dark. I just came through probably the darkest year of my life. I thought I was going to buy the farm at one point. (laughs) There comes a moment in everybody's life where it seems like the promise might not be good, and all you have left is the promise. Sometimes we get involved in soul winning and our neighbors don't respond, or the church holds a meeting and it didn't go that well. And everybody says, ah, well, that doesn't work. That's why the story of John the Baptist is there. To remind you that the promise is good and you will stand in the kingdom. I was at my ordination. I guess that makes sense. You have to go to your own ordination. And somebody met me behind the auditorium afterwards said, Sean, I was a family member who came. I need to tell you something. All your life, your grandfather prayed that you'd be a minister. He died when there wasn't a bit of hope that I'd be one. I can't wait. To see the look on his face when I'm there. (laughs) He died not knowing the promise. But I'm telling you what. the Promise is good. There's only one thing God's asked us to do. I mean, I, I challenge you to find something else in the Bible. There isn't. His marching orders were to go and teach all nations. One task. And sometimes it's bumpy. But I guarantee the promise is good. I was reading the parable of the wedding feast the other day. Where nobody would come. One of the last things Jesus says in that story. And a wedding was full. If he says that, I believe it. You can busy yourself reading all the statistics you want that evangelism won't work. But I have from Jesus a promise that it does. And I don't know about you, but I'm going to have dinner with Abraham. O Lord and Savior,
1: we're thankful again to hear the words of the Gospel the words of salvation, through our trials and tribulations on this earth. We have the hope, and it's a perfect hope of your salvation and that you'll come again to take us away from this earth. Help us in the meantime to live as though we know you and know that you're coming back. Help us each one, O Lord, to trust you completely. In Jesus' name, amen.